Welcome to Season 2 of ArcheoEd, a podcast about the ancient civilizations of the Americas. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnhart. For the last 30 years, I've been all over the Americas as an archaeologist, an explorer, and a seeker of esoteric knowledge. This podcast is just me, freed from the lecture podium and talking with you like we're just having a beer together. Sometimes it'll be very in-depth information about a particular subject. Other times it'll be very general information about a wide subject. Basically, it'll be anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast and I'm just having fun with it. I hope you enjoy it too. And without further ado, let's get started. Season 2, Episode 4, How I Discovered Mashna. My last episode on epidemics was an important and timely subject, but it took a lot of research to do. So for this episode, I decided to talk about something fun and easy for me. Namely, that time in my 20s when I discovered a whole Maya city in the remote jungles of Central America. I got to name the city, and I chose Mashna, which means monkey house, in honor of the howler monkeys who were lounging around in the main plaza when we arrived. But let's start from the beginning, which for me was really in high school. To be honest, it was the Indiana Jones movies that led me to reading about the Incas during my free time in the school library. And this was the mid-80s, so archaeology had a lot to learn about the Inca. I read about Machu Picchu, and how it was probably a religious pilgrimage site high up in the mountains. One of my books said that the Inca's daily life was divided into three equal parts— one-third work, one-third fun, and one-third worship. Now, that's totally false, and I know that now. But at the time, I came up with the following ignorant logic. If worship was one-third of an Inca's life, and they did so at mountain shrines like Machu Picchu, then there must be many more undiscovered Machu Picchus out there. So at 17, I announced to all my friends and the school career counselor that I was going to hike up and down the Andes repeatedly until I found an undiscovered city. That was my life's goal, to find an ancient city. Little did I know that I'd achieve it eight years later at the age of 25. I graduated high school in 1987 and went to the University of Colorado at Boulder. That choice had nothing to do with archaeology. I simply wanted to go somewhere where I could ski. I joined the anthropology department, but to my dismay, no professor at CU was teaching about the Inca. Looking through the course listing, I found a professor named Payson Sheets, whose specialty was a culture I had never heard of, the Maya. I signed up for his class and quickly became fascinated with the subject. When he announced a field school that next summer to Copan and Honduras, I sent my last hundred dollars as a deposit to join. I was accepted, and a few months later, I landed in Honduras, and that was the first time I had ever been out of the United States. My dad thought I was an idiot for going. It was there that I met my mentor, Linda Sheely. In a field mostly dominated by men, here was this big, brash woman who seemed to know more about Copan than all of her male colleagues combined. 
She stood in the plaza, reading hieroglyphs like she was reading a book. I was transfixed. When I got back to Colorado, I studied more and more about the Maya. That's when I realized how many parts of the Maya world were still completely unexplored. Sheely had so impressed me that when I graduated from CU, I applied for graduate school at UT Austin where she taught. I had to take more classes from this woman. UT denied my application, so I did what any rational person would do. I moved to Austin. UT had clearly made a mistake, and I just had to explain it better. I was going to grad school there. To make a long story short, I audited Sheely's classes for no credit, I took a job doing contract archaeology for the university, and eventually they let me in. Now, this is where the story of Mashna really begins. The chief Mayanist in UT's anthropology department was Dr. Fred Valdez, and he had a major project running in Belize. UT had a 20-year agreement with Belize to explore the northwest corner of the country, a huge protected biosphere called Program for Belize. Coca-Cola had previously owned the land and planned on chopping down the rainforest and planting orange trees to make orange crush. But environmentalists freaked out, and Coca-Cola was forced to donate the land to Belize. Hence, Program for Belize was born. Valdez invited me to join the research crew, and I jumped at the chance. So in the summer of 1994, I found myself living in a tent in Belize. Most of the other graduate students were excavating at previously known ruins, but I volunteered to be part of the survey and exploration efforts. That was way harder work than excavation, which also wasn't very easy. And in that year, only one other guy wanted to do it, Charles Hargrove. So, Charles and I became partners. A single dirt road ran north-south through the 250,000 acres of Program for Belize, or PFB as we called it. At 8 a.m., Valdez drove Charles and I down to mile marker 11 and said, Get out, go straight west, watch your compasses to stay straight, and be back to the road at 3.30. Equipped with machetes, compasses, and a gallon of water each, Charles and I began cutting into the jungle. About 30 feet in off the road, the first hill began. With great effort, we cut our line up the hill and down the other side, taking turns with the compass to keep the cutter going straight west. And on the other side of that hill, we found the second hill. It was noon by then, so we sat down ate our lunch, and finished our gallon jugs of water. We got up and started cutting our way up the second hill, but without any water, we were beginning to heat stroke. We quit early that first day and returned to the road waiting for Fred to pick us up. He was late. I didn't eat dinner that night. I just went to my tent and slept until morning. The next day, we got up and did it again. We brought more water but drank all that too early again. On the other side of hill number two was hill number three, and on the other side was hill number four, and then number five. A week passed like this, cutting up and down hills and finding no ruins. Then, on the other side of hill number six, we found something. 
it was a rusted British logging wagon. And honestly, I was pretty darn discouraged. Here I was, trying my guts out to find a thousand-year-old civilization, and all I got was a hundred-year-old British logging wagon. But then we got to thinking, what is this doing here? We looked around and realized that we were standing on a British logging road. Completely overgrown, but it was a road. So I said, heck, let's follow this road. Maybe it'll lead us back to the main road. In about a half a kilometer, it did. We hiked back up to mile marker 11 and told Valdez what we found. From then on, our day started at the British logging road, allowing us to avoid what we were affectionately calling the Six Hills of Death. The road took the path of least resistance through the hills. When archaeologists first survey an area, we follow what we call transects, basically survey lines. That's what our western line was, a western transect from the road. Being good little soldiers, we followed the logging road and then kept cutting straight west, climbing yet a seventh hill. But on the other side of that hill, we found our first Maya building. It wasn't much, a rectangular pile of stones, probably the base of a small Maya house. But it was ancient, and we found it. We poked around excitedly in the area and found two more buildings. And then, to our surprise, we found another British logging road. The next day, we returned with tape measures and graph paper to draw a little map of the three buildings we had found. We were curious about whether the logging road connected to the one with the wagon, so we followed it back around hill number seven. And it did connect. But it also led us right past six other Maya house mounds. Now we had a bona fide village on our hands. In total, we found about 20 buildings in this little valley, with a British logging road running right through the middle. So now we had a fire in our bellies. We were officially successful explorers. We continued our western transect and hit the logging road again. At this point, I wanted to stop this terribly difficult path straight west and just follow the logging road, but Charles was against it. Ultimately, we compromised and did both. We kept cutting that line up and down hills and about three kilometers from the main road at mile marker 11, we found another village with 22 buildings. Every other day, we followed the logging road, and it ended up crossing through two more little ancient villages. So in just six weeks' time, a crew of just two gringos had managed to find 71 ancient Maya buildings across four individual sites. We also managed to find every kind of thorny or poisonous plant out there the hard way. Looking back at it, I can't believe that Fred let two totally inexperienced city kids do that survey on their own. But that's what happened. I left Belize that first season feeling proud as a peacock. Charles and I had found not just one, but four ancient Maya villages. None of them were city size, but I was more encouraged than ever. Okay, time for my first commercial break. When I return, we'll talk about my second season at Program for Belize. Hey folks, 
I hope that most of you know by now that I've published a Maya Calendar iPhone app. But now I'm happy to announce that I've added a fun new feature. The ability to email friends their Maya birth date and associated horoscope. The Maya believe that your birth date shapes your personality and destiny. And my app was already showing you that. But now you can plug in a friend's birthday and email and for a small fee send them their own digital copy. It's a great little birthday gift or you could just send it for fun. You can find the app on the Apple App Store as Maya Calendar by me, Edwin Barnhart. Check it out. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. So my first season at PFB was over and I returned to Austin to continue grad school. I worked part-time to make ends meet, contract archaeology if I could find it, but mostly pizza delivery jobs. It was easy night shift work and I usually came home with a free pizza from my roommates. Sometimes you just gotta pay the bills, you know? I continued taking hieroglyphic classes from Linda Sheely but my main obsession was planning my next survey field season. I used this cool new thing called the World Wide Web to find and buy topographic maps of the region Charles and I had been searching. Charles got the internet too, but he downloaded the Unabomber's manifesto and a virus crashed his brand new computer. I'm still laughing about that. What kind of Yahoo downloads a manifesto about the evils of technology? Anyway, I scrutinized my new maps, finding mile marker 11, and penciling in the villages we had found. Then I used what I was learning in Shealy's classes to try to think like a Maya. If I was an ancient Maya, where on this map would I live? Shealy talked a lot about how the Maya venerated mountains, and how the hieroglyph for pyramid was Tun Wheats, or Stone Mountain. So I scanned the map for the tallest mountain in PFB. I found it just a few kilometers to the west of where Charles and I had been. Then I noticed there were two other peaks right next to it, and the three formed a triangle. In the valley between were three small rivers. Shelley had also been teaching her class about triadic pyramid formations, and how they symbolized the three hearthstones of the Maya creation. So here I had a triad of mountains with three rivers and a fertile valley in between. It was perfect. I decided that's where I would look for my lost city. But how to get out there? I hated that western transect. Then I noticed these dashed lines leading off the main road into the forest. And then I realized... One of them was the logging road we had found. 
Once I knew that dashed lines were old logging roads, I saw that they snaked all over the map, and the road that we had found connected to other roads leading to my triad of mountains. Now I had a destination and a plan of how to get there. I told my friends in Sheely's class about it, and the older graduate students humored me with encouragement. Chris Viela was an exception. He said, So you have one month, a machete, and this map. There's no way you're going to find an undiscovered city. Anyway, all the big ones have already been found. So now on top of my obsession, I had a personal challenge. Excellent. So in the summer of 1995, I returned to Belize to work for Fred Valdez again. Charles didn't return, but I had climbed the staff ranks a bit, and Fred gave me a group of students to teach survey. I also got my own truck, which was pretty cool. Another grad student named Chap Ross volunteered to be my partner, a Texan with a thick southern drawl and a pleasant demeanor. Chap fell in love with Belize and still lives on Ambergris K to this day. Chap, if you're listening, I miss you, buddy. Climactically, it was a bad season. There were tons of violent rainstorms. That made the mosquitoes really bad, and we had to cover our faces with bandanas or breathe them in. High winds during the storms were pushing huge trees over in the forest. We'd hear a giant crack like a bomb, and then a falling tree. You couldn't tell where it was coming from, which scared the crap out of us. Any moment, we could get hit with dominoes of falling trees. The PFB rangers had taught us how to make quick shelters out of palm leaves, so we could hear a storm coming across the jungle like a stampede of horses and quick make a palm leaf lean-to, and we'd hide under those. One time, hiding under a lean-to with my wide-eyed students, I explained that if we heard a tree fall crack, everyone was to run in a different direction, so that at least some of us weren't pinned under a falling tree. They didn't like that, and really, neither did I. Another frequent danger was killer bees. They would fly through the jungle in big swarms, and we were miles from any shelter to hide in. If just one person got stung, the entire swarm would have their scent and sting them. And that could mean death. Literally. No exaggeration. The rangers had told me that the bees never got closer than three foot from the jungle floor. There were just too many bushes for them. So when I heard them, I would yell for everyone to lie on their bellies on the ground. They would fly over and then we'd get back up. No one ever got stung, but I'd hold my breath every time and pray that no fool student would get up and run. Those were just some of the challenges we faced in the field. Life back at the camp was also a bit of a challenge. We had a dorm for the students, a lab, and a tin roof covered section for the meal hall and kitchen. Most of the staff, including myself, lived in tent world. That was another tin-roofed section about, with about 20 tents underneath. Showers were fed from an elevated water tank and restricted to one minute each. People in line would count down the person in the shower. The girls especially hated that. Then there were the latrines. We had eight, which was plenty, but they were six-foot-deep holes covered with outhouses. At night, Bats would sneak into the holes and sometimes flutter up, 
smacking their wings on someone's naked butt. If we heard a scream from the latrines, we'd just look at each other and say, bat shock. At some point, everyone was subjected to bat shock. Fred's camp policy was quiet time at 8.45 and then lights out at 9 p.m. As you might imagine, that didn't sit well with a group of 20-somethings. He said if you must stay up and socialize, you had to go out to the road. So I'd grab a few beers from the camp's door and head out there with a few students. Staff had special access to beers after lights out, so the students would beg me to share my beers with them. So I went from carrying two beers to six beers, and eventually I filled up a cooler. I'd buy them on my tab, and then they could owe me. I was still a new staff member, and the other graduate students obnoxiously called themselves the super elite. They had exclusive parties that students weren't allowed in, and special access to things like liquor and snacks from the stores in Orange Walk. I didn't want anything to do with that and I made a point to invite anyone out to the road with me. One thing led to another, and it became a dozen or more people out on the road every night. Fred said we were making too much noise and told us to move a half a kilometer down the road, further from the camp. That's when I started filling a big cooler with beer and using a wheelbarrow to haul it down the road. It got to be such a thing that I decided to give it a name. I called our place on the road the Cinnabar. I thought it was a clever name, like the Maya sacred substance Cinnabar, but also Sinners at a Bar. Over the four seasons I was at PFB, the Cinnabar grew in fame and size. Eventually, I had live music on the weekends and snacks. But admittedly, it was also trouble. Students would get too drunk and misbehave, There was that one time when we had a toga party and accidentally mooned a Mennonite family. I mean, we thought it was a logging truck. We did not know it was a family. And the worst one probably was when a ranger joined us and got so drunk that he prowled around the camp roaring like a jaguar. Now, I could fill a whole podcast with just Cinnabar stories, but this one is supposed to be about Mashna. So when I return from this final commercial break, I'll get back to the survey. With COVID declining and vaccinations proceeding at a good pace, it's time to get out there and travel again. I'll be personally leading two trips to Mesoamerica this summer. In June, I'll lead a tour from Palenque to Copan, visiting Bonampak, Yashilan, Tikal, and Kirigua along the way. Then in July, I'll lead a tour in Oaxaca, staying in the city and visiting the many sites of the Oaxaca Valley. If you'd like to learn more, both trips are posted on my website, mayaexploration.org. That's mayaexploration.org. Come join me for an adventure. You've earned it. Okay, I'm back. Back to the survey. My plan, as I explained, was to follow the logging roads out to the Triad of Mountains. But the trick was, which road, if any, would lead us there? Pretty close to the PFB main road, we found a fork in the logging road, 
One part was the one I knew, and the other was heading more west. So we investigated the unknown road. Not 200 meters down its way, we found more ancient buildings, a fifth village. It had another 20 buildings or so, and one was a pretty big platform. But it wasn't just Charles and I now. I had a group of students to teach how to map. There really wasn't any manual of how to map Maya ruins. I knew we should use meter tapes and compasses, but the details were foggy. So I came up with my own methods. At first, I called it leapfrog mapping. Later, I came up with a more professional-sounding name. I called it relational mapping. Basically, we wandered around and found a few buildings, and then we would pick a central one, measure its length, width, and height, and draw it into the center of a piece of graph paper. One of the biggest challenges of finding ancient Maya buildings is the thickness of the forest. You can be five meters away from a 10-meter-tall building and not see it through the trees. So, I'd put one student on the known building and put another on a yet-unmapped building. I'd have them call out to each other to determine what direction the new building was in. They would use their compasses to determine the direction. Let's say it was northwest. Then you'd think they'd just walk to each other and measure the distance and azimuth. But that's harder than it sounds. Even a trained person has a hard time localizing the exact direction of a voice, much less a half-heat-stroked student. They would miss each other, disagree about the azimuth, or find some impassable tree in between them. So I decided to work the jungle like a piece of graph paper. If the unknown building was northwest... I had one student cut straight north from his building and another cut straight east. When their lines intersected, they would pace them off. If it was 20 meters north and 8 meters east, we'd simply translate that to our graph paper and draw in the new building. Then we'd use that as a known building and fan out again to find another. Then the process would repeat. We mapped buildings' location in relation to each other. Hence, relational mapping. I had planned on following the fork road farther, but this new site had delayed me, and it was a good thing that it did. On the very first day we were mapping, a huge storm rolled in, very high winds. We heard a gigantic tree fall somewhere to the south, and then a bunch more falling in its wake. Curious, we went looking for it after the storm passed. We found it lying across a further out section of our logging road. It was at least six foot in diameter and would have driven us into the ground like nails if we had been on the road right then. To this day, I think that little village, which I named Bolsa Verde, saved my life. But in any event, that way was now blocked to us. Part of my reasoning for finding the logging roads was to cut them out wide enough to get trucks in eventually, and that way was now a no-go. So, we followed the first logging road deeper into the jungle. We also continued Charles and I's western transect. I didn't want to, but Fred said we had to do it. Cutting both deeper into the woods, they intersected again. At that point, I just abandoned that stupid transect and kept following the road. 
It was obviously snaking west, just avoiding most of the hills. The deeper we got into the forest, the more animals we encountered. Sometimes it was scary, but usually it was just kind of magical. A big group of Coatamundis found us, and their little babies wrestled right in front of us. They totally didn't care we were there. The monkeys did care. In fact, they were pissed. Spider monkeys would swoop down close, yell, and then bound away. On our lunch breaks, they would crap in their hands and throw it at us. If the sky was clear and it started raining, that meant a monkey was pissing on you. We saw some big animals, too. One day we saw a tapir. It was mellow, but the size of a small cow, which was a little unnerving. One day there was a foul smell in the air. Before we knew it, a herd of peccaries came charging out of the forest straight at us. To be perfectly honest, I froze. I stood there flat-footed as the bull charged right at me. Just five feet away, he turned suddenly left. Thirty more pigs turned left right behind him, and just as quickly as they appeared, they were gone. Again, blind luck had saved my life. So for about two weeks straight, we cut that logging road out. We'd searched side valleys, but found nothing. Every day we'd cut further out, and it got to the point where we'd walk an hour just to get to the point we had last cut, then an hour back to the PFB road. Back at camp, the super elite were making fun of me, saying that I had no research methodology and that I was just wandering out in the forest. I must admit, I was beginning to think they had a point. The days were very hard. Students were getting heat stroke and sliced up by thorny trees. I hadn't found a building in weeks. I had a much older student with me, a 70-year-old man who we called Doc Charles. He had retired from being a family practice doctor in Palestine, Texas, and was now following his passion, archaeology. But one day, Doc Charles just passed out from exhaustion. We basically had to carry him kilometers back to the main road. Fred was pissed at me. He said that Doc Charles couldn't join me anymore, and he switched him to an excavation project near the camp. About three days later, Doc Charles found me at my tent and sat down on the log next to me. He said, Ed, your project is where I want to be. I didn't come here to dig a damn hole. If I can't be with you, I'm quitting and leaving tomorrow. I went back to Fred and pleaded Doc Charles's case. I said I would personally look after him, never letting him out of my sight. Fred reluctantly agreed. The next day, we hiked out the now five kilometers out to our start point and immediately started up a steep hill. It was one of my three mountains. Not the biggest one, but the one to the east. On top of it, it was much more of a flat plateau than I was expecting. Since the ground had flattened out, we fanned out to look around. About 50 meters south of the logging road, we found a building, and it was a big one. It was square, about 20 meters on a side, and about 6 meters tall. As we stood there admiring it, none of us noticed the army ants until they were halfway up our legs. We bolted in different directions to clear the swarm and took our pants off. Just like that, we were literally pantsed by the jungle. But 
We collected ourselves, put our pants back on, and I said, okay, it's time for some relational mapping. There were six of us that day, so I paired us up and sent us north, south, and west, cardinal directions from our new building. Doc Charles and I took south. But in about 30 minutes, I heard the Western team shouting my name. They sounded panicked, and I thought, oh crap, they've been bitten by a fair to lance. It was just days away from the end of the project, and there was a camp superstition that bad things always happened in the final days. I had our only snake anti-venom kit in my backpack, so I sprinted through the forest in their direction. But when I found them... I had to look way up because they were jumping up and down on top of a 17-meter-tall pyramid. Relieved and excited, I told them to stay there, and I went back for Doc Charles. Then I went back and found the other crew. Leading that last crew back, I was moving fast and cutting little. I ducked my head under a palm leaf and stuck it right into a wasp's nest. They crawled into my hair and stung the top of my head a dozen times. Jim Eckhart witnessed it. He said I threw my machete, dove to the ground, and then rolled over and yelled, Ow! Hurt! Pain! and pointed at the palm. I honestly don't remember it. I do remember I got up and I climbed the pyramid where the rest of the crew was waiting. I said to Doc Charles, I said, I was just stung in the head about a dozen times. Am I going to be all right? He dryly replied, well, anaphylactic shock sets in within a minute, so if you're not already dead, you're probably fine. Ah, good enough. I ate my sandwich, and we discussed what we would do for the rest of the day. As we talked, a group of howler monkeys came across the tops of the trees to our eye level and roared at us. Clearly, we had invaded their homes. But after lunch, we climbed down the other side of the pyramid into what was obviously a plaza. We spread out again. Doc Charles and I went straight west and in a hundred meters ran into another pyramid. From the north, a voice called out, another pyramid. From the south, Jim called out, ball court. I had done it. At the age of 25, I had found a lost city. Maybe not exactly where I thought it would be, but I'd take it. Celebrating back at camp that night, the crew asked me what I would call it. I thought for a moment and said, What about Mashna, in honor of those angry howler monkeys in the plaza? And the name stuck. Now it's even got a Facebook page. There were only three days left to the project, but we managed to find and map another 50 buildings, including two more pyramids. Back in Texas, I got to tell Sheely and especially Chris Viela, that I had done it. I also went back to Dallas and told my old high school buddies. I mean, really, who does that? I actually found a lost ancient city. And really, that was just the beginning. I had another two seasons of adventures at Mashna. By the end of my time there, I had mapped over 500 buildings, and there were still many more. Well, by my own rules, I'm out of time now, but I really enjoyed doing this podcast about Mashna. If enough of you comment that you'd like to hear more, maybe I'll do part two next month and tell you the rest of the Mashna story. But either way, this is Ed Barnhart, signing off. 
You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support ArcheoEd through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.